Let the, word go the challenge, the opportunity to connect. The 1960s, a time of imagination and change, a time of anger and fear. The 1960s is a pioneering program called Challenge. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. That looked at our connections, our divisions, through the lens of shared values. Sixty years later, we examine our divisions, our connections, our shared pains and successes in a new program called Challenge 2.0. In last week's episode of Challenge 2.0, we began a conversation with an internationally recognized advocate of nonviolence, discussing how it's a proven path to peace and justice. In this week's episode, we explore exactly what the practice of nonviolence looks like, how it simultaneously demands change within to see change in the world around us, and evidence documenting just how effective a practice it is. So we're very thankful to have with us once again this week, Father John Deere, who is stopping all too briefly in the Seattle area. And in part, you're talking about what you've described as your life work, the gospel of peace. And I'd like to ask you about a term that I heard of fairly recently, and it's called muscular Christianity. Mm -hmm. And it's where we see lawmakers and others posing in front of Christmas trees with uh, assault weapons, their Christmas cards festooned with that sort of stuff, uh, Santa and machine gun uh, gatherings. When you hear about that sort of thing, what's your reaction? None of that has anything to do with Jesus. It's all, you know, the old days they used to have big words for that. It was called blasphemy, mm -hmm. heresy, idolatry. There's no such thing as muscular Christianity. There's just discipleship to the nonviolent Jesus. Mm -hmm. That's why they said in the last taping, um, Gandhi said Jesus was the greatest person of nonviolence who ever lived. Mm -hmm. I maintain in my writings and teachings, and I've really, really worked on this, that Jesus practiced and taught, I'm calling it now, total nonviolence. I don't even know what that means, but universal love, universal compassion, doing no harm to anyone in thought, word, or deed. He's, he is the epitome of what it means to be a human being. So uh, we're so far from that. To think you could claim to be a follower of his and even own a gun, much less use a gun, much less think Jesus would support having guns, much less engage in war, build nuclear weapons, make money in the face of how many hundreds of millions of people, human beings, our sisters and brothers, who are starving today. No, Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount a spectacular vision of total nonviolence. He said, you know, <laughs> you've heard it said, thou shalt not kill. I say, don't even get angry. Mm -hmm. He's way beyond anger. Be reconciled, he says. Offer, you've heard an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I say offer no violent resistance to one who does evil. No violent resistance. This is where Gandhi got mm -hmm. active creative nonviolence. You've heard love your country men and hate your enemies. I say love your enemies. Then you're really sons and daughters of God. It's, and then he practices it. But, you know, I always think when I hear your, your stories, and I've given my whole life to trying to get people to quit the military, get rid of their guns, stop building nuclear weapons. I'm trying to get priests and ministers not to bless war mm -hmm. and to teach them that God is not a God of war, but a God of peace, not a God of hate, but a God of universal, unconditional love beyond our even understanding. So uh, I think of the, the, the scene in the Garden of Gethsemane, 
And I've talked to so many people about this. If Gandhi's right, here come the Roman soldiers. They're going to arrest our guy, Jesus. What does Peter do? He takes up the sword because he's thinking, if violence is ever justified, this is the time. If there is ever a just war, this is it. And he's right. Let's kill to protect our guy. Mm -hmm. The Holy One's in trouble. And he goes to, and just as he goes to kill, the commandment comes down, put down the sword. And about 20 years ago, I realized one day, those are the last words of Jesus to the church. Really, before he was killed, that's the last thing the men and women around him heard him say. Put down the sword. And I think it's the first time they understood who this guy is. Mm-hmm. All this talk about love and peace and compassion, they realized, like I did in, in Galilee, oh my God, he's deadly serious. He's not going to defend himself with violence in the face of the Roman troops, which means we don't get to defend ourselves with violence. We're only allowed nonviolent defense, mm-hmm. which means we're out of here. They all run away from him, and he's dragged away, and they kill him, and he goes to his death in total nonviolence, even forgiving the people who killed him. And he comes back and says, now you practice nonviolence. No, we've so, we're so far from Jesus, and we don't have any idea who the living God is. So uh, that's why I'm out talking the way I am, saying no Christian who claims to follow this guy, Jesus, who is the epitome of total nonviolence and the ultimate peacemaker can have anything to do with war and violence again. Mm-hmm. It's way beyond not having a gun, not building nuclear weapons, not joining any military for any nation anywhere in the world. I'm against all militaries, and that's why everybody's mad at me. No, it's total nonviolence. Mm-hmm. Unconditional love for everybody, beginning with the people your country is targeting. That's why I've traveled the war zones of the world mm-hmm. and I've been in jail on and off my whole life. Really, uh, Jeff. And um, 85 times, I think, I've Arrested, but that's yeah. been a lot of time in jail, but also in many war zones and been in a lot of dangerous situations. Mm-hmm. And that's the job description of the Christian to be unarmed in a world armed to the teeth, to be a peacemaker in a world where war makers are blessed, and to practice universal love even for our enemies, even when all Christians have gone insane with violence. And we now have Christian nationalism sweeping our country the same way it did with Germany in the 30s, and we don't even see it. And it's way beyond any political party, in my opinion. No, this is um, a real blasphemy and uh, I invite everybody to come back to the the original gospel vision of Jesus because he's so spectacular. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to kill or hurt anybody, and I don't think anybody should, and nothing is worth it. And who wants to have a gun anyway? They're too dangerous to have around the house when your kid could get hurt. Or who wants to be involved in supporting any war, much less make millions by building nuclear weapons out of the Trident base and maintaining them, when life is so short? And we're going to meet Jesus someday, or at least the God of love. And she's going to say, and what did you do to help? You don't want to say, I spent my life making money, building nuclear weapons, trying to destroy in 15 minutes everything you built, God. Is that a little over the top, Jeff? (laughs) So you have mentioned that in the process of 40 plus years, working to promote, to advocate for nonviolent solutions, that you've been told more than once, I think you said 
almost every day how misguided you are. And yeah. I suspect misguided is probably a nice way of putting it for the benefit of our television oh, yeah. audience. Whatever they're thinking, I've heard it. <laughs> but there's research, and you've quoted that, uh -huh, yeah. that shows how powerful and how effective nonviolence is. Uh, you describe that in your book. Can you tell us a little bit about exactly what that research Thank shows? Thank you for asking that. We have never had so much uh, research and study. Uh, um, you know, it's so fantastic on the theology and spirituality of mm -hmm. creative nonviolence, which is just the words for love and peace and truth of our common oneness. But on the political, I don't want to use the word effectiveness because that's not a gospel word, but let's just say how nonviolence works, mm -hmm. like the research we have now. So about 10 years ago, my friends, Dr. Erica Chenoweth and Dr. Maria Stefan, who are world-famous social sci scientists, but they are Harvard scholars who have a lot of money and teams of scholars who used research, and I mean math, Mm -hmm. and statistics, and they studied every war and conflict. I am not kidding you, from 1900 to 2006, just statistics with a lot of researchers that came out with this massive study called Why Civil Resistance Works. And we now know that wherever an organized, funded, structured, systemic, nonviolent resistance was used against tyranny, Mm -hmm. um, any oppressive force in nonviolent revolutions, it worked. It worked to end the conflict faster, and it brought about a longer-lasting nonviolent democratic societies. The evidence is in. This is now being studied all, definitely by the United Nations, the European Union. The people in the U.S. State Department mm -hmm. are bringing these people in to study. These are very high-level people. It has not gone into the mainstream. Forget the churches into schools and universities people don't realize. And everyone should read and study this book, Why Civil Resistance Works. Like Foreign Affairs Magazine, which is not a leftist journal, let's say, calls these the two people the top 10 intellectuals on the planet. So this is real serious. Now you'd say, well, what does that mean, John? Well, you could say, there's nothing you can do against Hitler, which is what everybody thinks. No. When nonviolence is organized, as it was in Denmark, Bulgaria, and Norway, mm -hmm. far fewer deaths and the saving of millions of lives of Jews. Go and do your homework, folks. And the, all the nonviolent revolutions, it's not just Gandhi and Dr. King's movement, but I mean, there's been 85 nonviolent revolutions in the last 50 years alone. We've never had this in history, and some of us have seen it. Now they're being filmed. My favorite is right. Lima Gaboi. Do you know who she is, Jeff? I don't, no. She won the Nobel Peace Prize 15 years ago. She's the Martin Luther King of the planet right now, and a Nobel Peace Prize winner. That's because there was this awful dictator, Charles Taylor, who killed hundreds of thousands of people in uh, Liberia, mm -hmm. and she had a dream of Jesus who said, Lima, get up and do something. She was a nobody. She got all the women of Liberia to go and sit in the streets. The dictator went on the tea. On the, she said, we're gonna be killed anyway. Mm -hmm. Let's just say no. He goes on the TV and laughs at the women, and a week later, he fled the country. <laughs> it's a total nonviolent revolution. You go, well, that, I can hear people thinking, yeah. oh, isn't that nice? No, Pete, you give your lives for this. It's risky. It's hard. You plan it. You organize it with the passion I have. 
against dictators. We have it easy here. And uh, it'll work if you try it. Gandhi was right. Dr. King was right. Jesus was right. But now we have the evidence that this works when it's tried. I remember being with Cesar Chavez. He was the leader of the farm workers when I was a kid. And he was, I was like you, and he was talking the way I am now. And he was trying to say, John, violence and war don't work. Nonviolence works. You just got to try it. But you, it's not just being an activist. You have to become an organizer. And that's why the teaching is that everybody has to get involved in a grassroots movement. Mm -hmm. You can't just stay at home and you can't just be nonviolent in your personal life. You have to get involved in the struggle because things are so bad. And that's what, I, that's what Erica and Maria in their book are showing us. If everybody pitches in and does their one or two, three things to help to end homelessness, end war, mm -hmm. get rid of nuclear weapons, it'll make it, it becomes contagious. You talk about the three steps that are uh, perhaps separate, but also integrated with each other that we need to take to get us on the path of nonviolent activism. Can you just give us a quick summary of what those three steps yeah. are, what we need to do? Well, this was, I've been trying to figure this out for so long, and so I wrote this book called The Nonviolent Life. Mm -hmm. And I propose, I call them attributes, and I made all, making all this up as you see, Jeff. <laughs> So I'm saying that the peacemaking life, the life of nonviolence, and I mean holistic, integrated life at the mm -hmm. level of Jesus to Dr. King, let's say, or just Jesus and Buddha, or let's say just Jesus, uh, requires three simultaneous attributes. You have to do all three mm -hmm. simultaneously. And maybe we're good at one of them. Some great people do too. Few want to do all three. Number one, and it's just at the same time, you try to be totally nonviolent to yourself. This is so helpful to think about this. I invite everybody to think about it because we're all raised, we've been hurt and beat up, and so we internalize that and we put ourselves down and I'm nobody. That's violence to ourselves. And we want to non cooperate with our inner violence, mm -hmm. affirm ourselves, be compassionate to ourselves make peace with ourselves. But now we're getting into the spirituality of nonviolence where you forgive everyone who ever hurt you. Mm -hmm. Let it all go. All your anger, hurts, wounds, your resentments, your bitterness, all your violence, let it go and cultivate interior nonviolence. Create a space within for the God of peace to live within you. And that's why we meditate and spend time with God every day mm -hmm. so that this beautiful God who created the beautiful Seattle area can come and dwell within you. God is just infinite love who just wants to be with us. Nobody wants to leave me alone. <laughs> Nobody wants God. But it feels good to be at peace with yourself, by the way. <laughs> well, while you're working on that every day, number two, meticulous interpersonal nonviolence, total nonviolence toward every person you meet Mm -hmm. will ever meet every nonviolence toward every person on the planet and all the creatures and Mother Earth. How's that going for you, Jeff? So that's the it's vision. It's a call. Right, it's no, a call. it's what it means to be human. Yeah. It's so uh, a truly, you know, we can all be nice. And even especially people in the peace movement. Yeah, I'm all for peace. But deep down, there's all, every one of us, there's somebody would like to get back at. Whether it's our parent or our neighbor the priest, the pope, the president, somebody. All of them are our teachers. 
because they're exposing the violence within us. Mm -hmm. And we have to figure out how to be nonviolent to the difficult people in our lives and to the nonviolent and be nonviolent to the big people on the planet who are reaping harm. And that's where we get to grow. And there's many tools and ways to figure out how to do this. And now there's so many books and workshops and online videos mm -hmm. about it. But the third thing, at the same time, you're working on yourself, your relationships, and by the way, the creatures and Mother Earth. But the third thing, you have to have one foot in the global grassroots movement of mm -hmm. nonviolence to work for justice for the poor, the disarmament of our weapons and our wars, and to protect creation and a new kind of environmental sustainability because mm -hmm. we're destroying the planet. So positive social change never comes from top down. It's mm -hmm. always bottom up. That's the lesson of Gandhi and King. And now the thousands, there's tens of thousands of grassroots movements that are so beautiful around the planet. Everybody's got to be involved. Everybody is needed. You don't have to do everything, but mm -hmm. everybody's got to do something. And every one of us can be Rosa Parks, that tipping point person. And everybody's got skills that they can bring. What we're looking for is the abolition of nuclear weapons. You know, and ending these wars nonviolently that are happening now that we're all concerned about, especially Ukraine and the Middle East. They're very doable. We can end them. We have tools to them. We just need the political will. And that means grassroots movements and talking publicly and building up the willpower and, and, uh, and the, the, the desire for peace around the world. That's what I'm talking about. So if we can do all three and all of us just reject violence more and more and become kind of holistic people of peace and nonviolence, it will all help for future generations. I think you've also had some validation by reaching out to the late Pope Benedict XVI and Pope Francis, that you've seen some hopeful signs in that direction of it becoming more integrated with the larger Catholic Church and other institutions as well. Tell us a little bit about that. My, my whole way of being has been working for a world without war and nuclear weapons and poverty and racism and executions and torture and I could go on and on, fossil fuels and the destruction of the earth. I figure, why not think big? It's called yeah. the kingdom of God is at hand, Jeff. So we're working to welcome this reign of God. We don't build it, we welcome it. And then along the way, the church might become the community of followers of the nonviolent Jesus. We might disarm if we all begin to realize that's the calling. You know, I've been banned from so many churches and kicked out of places and had parishioners threaten to kill me. It's been very exciting. But by the way, so did Jesus, so I feel like I'm doing my You're job description. Yeah. Never did I think I'd ever get to the Vatican. But in fact, I have. And I gave my book to Pope John Paul uh, of my theology book. Anyway, we started writing to Pope Benedict, some friends here in the States, and saying, well, what about all these new teachings mm -hmm. about Jesus and total nonviolence? And then Pope Francis came in. And in fact, we were invited over there. And then, in fact, in 2016, we had the first ever conference on nonviolence in the history of the Catholic Church in the Vatican with all the leading people. And there were only 85 participants outside of all the Vatican. And they were from maybe 40 countries. And I think to attend, you had to either uh, spend time in prison, uh, 
be under a lot of death threats or personally ended a war. I, I met saints, and there were only three from the United States there, as I recall, other friends. And it was church-changing. Uh, we issued a statement, the Vatican issued a statement, Pope Francis issued a statement saying, there is no such thing as a just war. Jesus didn't say, love your enemies, but if they're really bad and you follow these seven conditions, mm-hmm. bomb the hell out of them. No, love your enemies, period. So all of this is a myth and a lie that, we've all, that the nations have brainwashed the church into believing that God blesses war. No. And, and since that conference, the Pope has issued spectacular statements on peace and war to the point of saying you, the very uh, existence and maintenance and development of nuclear weapons is totally immoral mm-hmm. and evil and against God. So he's gone way beyond any previous Pope to outline every form of violence. And while I was there, the number two cardinal asked me to write the Pope's next statement for, there's a, he issues an annual statement on mm-hmm. peace on New Year's Day, and he asked me to write it on nonviolence, which I did, and so my friends then rewrote, and it, the Pope published it on January 1st, 2017. It's called Nonviolence. Pope Francis has done great work on calling us all to solidarity with the poor and ending poverty, mm-hmm. protecting Mother Earth like St. Francis did, but also peace. We want him to write this as an encyclical that it's a Catholic law and teaching that to be Catholic is to be a person of universal love and mm-hmm. total nonviolence. Therefore, we have to work to end war. And uh, I'm hoping he will still do it. We're still engaged with the Vatican. And uh, we all will keep at it. That's what you do. As somebody embarks, seeks to embark on this path, practice nonviolence within themselves, the way they relate to themselves, the way they relate to others, and then engage with other organizations or movements, Sometimes they have the feeling that I'm way down here and these people are unreachable. Uh, what or people? The, the people running the organizations that they'd like to engage with. Mm-hmm. And what strikes me from our prior conversation and from your writing is how uh, deep their humanity is, how much even their sense of humor is, that they feel grief, they feel sorrow over what they're experiencing, but they also have a wonderful sense of humor and way of relating to each other and to other people. And I'm thinking of one story that you told in particular about the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu. Could you just share that with us? Sure. Oh, no, but I would always encourage everybody to get involved. Make friends with other people who are working for the environment, for justice, Mm -hmm. and for peace. Be with people like that and join a group or form a community in your parish so you're not alone. Mm -hmm. That's what I did. I've been part of hundreds of groups my whole life because I've moved around. They keep kicking me out. And uh, it's been a great adventure. Well, I got invited uh, to go to Denver for a week, maybe 20 years ago. There was a group that brought in Nobel Peace Prize winners and there were 10 Nobel Peace Prize winners, including the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Tutu, Mm -hmm. who's an old friend of mine. Don't ask me how. He nominated you for the Nobel Peace Prize. I, I guess he, he, was, he couldn't find anybody else. <laughs> but anyway, he would love that. He would yeah. laugh because he thought I was ridiculous, but he was pretty ridiculous too. So I'm backstage with the 10 Nobel Peace Prize winners. I'll try to say this fast. And there's, we're in a, some stadium. I don't even remember it now. There was this massive crowd. And uh, 
there's just a couple of couches and we've been hanging out together. And here on the couch is the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu. And you know how in a conversation it gets quiet and suddenly it gets really quiet. And the Dalai Lama turned to Tutu and said to him, you know, Tutu, you have the biggest mouth on the planet. You're driving everybody crazy. And I hope somebody does kill you. And I ought to kill you myself. With that, he lunges at Tutu and starts to choke him. And Tutu is choking. And then, you know, he falls back like that with his tongue hanging out like he's dead. And then the two of them fall on the floor. I'm not kidding you. And we, the, the friends, looking at them, and they're both in their robes, grabbing their stomachs, and their eyes are closed, and their mouths open. They're laughing so hard, no sound is coming out. They're going, ah, like five-year-old kids. And just then, somebody walked in the room and said, you're on. And they got up and brushed themselves off and walked out like Tutu and the Dalai Lama to speak to 25,000 people. And I thought to myself, that's what I want. These great people were way beyond anger mm -hmm. and fear and narcissism and selfishness. They lived life and loved life to the full and they were, and they were under constant death threat mm -hmm. and they were making a huge difference. And I think that's the way Jesus was. They were people of total nonviolence. All the great people I've met were like that. Surely Gandhi and Dr. King and Jesus were like that because everybody wants to be around them. Joan Baez told me that Martin Luther King was the funniest person she ever met. And you don't think about that when you think about no, you Dr. Don't. King. Well, he would have to be if he's that smart. Gandhi had 400 people living with him and they said, you know, he was like the Maharishi with the Beatles. He was just giggling all the time. And, you know, when he was in a big gap, you know, 100,000 people would show up when Gandhi goes to speak. Half of them want to kill him. And he's just sitting there giggling. Like, go ahead. Then you'll put me out of my misery. I'll be in heaven. You'll get it. And um, that's what I want, is uh, to make peace and live life. My friend Daniel Berrigan told me when I was 21, when I went and saw him, if you're going to spend your life resisting death, you better learn how to live life to the full. I can't think of a better way to wrap up this all-too-short conversation. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Best of luck on your important work. And uh, we'll hope that maybe you'll come back and watch this a second time. If you ever come back in Seattle, I hope we can have pick up where we left off with this conversation. Great. Thanks for having me. All the best. Thank you so much for tuning into this edition of Challenge 2.0. We hope you'll tune in again next week. Thank you.